chapters of Daniel, we've uh, talked about these lessons we can learn as resident aliens. And uh, we're talking about how we as Christians, as members of God's kingdom, need to live our lives differently. That the things that are going on in this world are not things that uh, we are necessarily going to participate in. That we are always going to be living our lives a little bit differently. The story we're going to be going through today in Daniel chapter 3 is one. uh, For those of you in here who are like me, I've been in church, I like to say it, every Sunday since the since the moment I was hatched. So I've been in church my entire life, and I can remember this story from Sunday school for so long. Uh, It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as VeggieTales so eloquently put it, Rack, Shack, and Benny. So I really like that. Today, uh, we're going to—I have uh, my boy Andrew. He's going to be standing up, or standing up, sitting down, whatever. We're going to be starting with uh, Daniel chapter 3, starting in the first six verses. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provisional officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So everyone assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. All right, great job, bud. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's my boy. All right. But uh, I know. I, I'm biased. Anyways. So here's our setup. So uh, we, we talked last week about how our friend, uh, I'm going to call him King Nebby right now, uh, he had a bad dream that uh, Daniel miraculously interpreted. This dream had this image uh, of a statue with a head of gold, arms and chest of silver, and a midsection of bronze, and legs that were made of, of a mix of iron and clay. And uh, I think I have it here? Yes, there we go. So that's just a reminder of what this thing looks like. It's pretty cool looking or weird looking, but uh, uh, Daniel is setting this up for us here that Nebuchadnezzar is creating this image that all peoples are to worship, and the, this entire thing is made of gold. Now, in the dream, we see the gold. It's just the head, it's, uh, and that is what represents Nebuchadnezzar, and the dream is just the head, and, uh, but now Nebuchadnezzar is making this huge thing. It's all of gold, all me, all the time. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is saying by creating this statue. And, and they create this image that is just beyond ridiculous. I have our real scale portion of it right here. That's just a joke. But, okay, so we have this tower. And, okay, uh, Randy, uh, Mark, you're here. What's wrong with this? Why, why, won't, why does this not last? Not enough structure. Okay, so this base is six cubits wide, but 60 cubit, cubit, cubits tall. I don't know how tall it is to the top of this thing. It can't be more, much more than 30 or 40 feet. And that's how tall it is. It's about 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Doesn't have a whole lot of lasting power. In fact, if you want to play Jenga, if I, you know, just, uh, yeah, that's all it takes to knock this thing over. And so this is comically, uh, this it's almost as if the writer is making fun of Babylon. This is what they're worshiping. And Nebuchadnezzar, by this uh, image, he's making a political statement as well as a religious statement. 
that a political, I am the ruler of the greatest empire on earth, and everybody better do what, they, what I command them to do or they're going to suffer the consequences. And he's making a religious statement that's far worse. I don't care how miraculous it was that this dude, Daniel, interpreted my dream, that he told me what it meant, that he was able to just glean from a, apparently midair of what dream I had. I don't care about God's divine intervention. I am making the statue. It's all gold. It's all about me. And what we're trying to drive home throughout this series in Daniel is that this, this, these stories go well beyond applying to a group of people at a particular time. These stories are universal to God's people. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to answer a question that we're faced with every day. Is God good? Is God powerful? Can we trust him? They had no qualms about whether or not God is. I, that's not a question we're going to be answering uh, today. But even in exile, even that, though their God let their people be taken captive, they did not question whether or not God existed, whether or not they had gotten it wrong. They, but they were paying attention to God, and they were paying attention when God made this command through Moses in Exodus. Now I'm losing it here. There we are. Okay. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 5, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is that in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is telling us that I am going to be the only object that you worship. Today, we're not being faced with the threat of death if we refuse to stop and worship a man-made structure if we hear a horn. But remember, an idol is anything that takes, is, that takes a place in your heart that should only belong to the one true God. So you aren't bowing down to buildings. You're not being told to do that. But what about your bank account? What about your job, your family, your self-satisfaction, your happiness? It's very simple. Here's a very simple formula. God plus anything equals idolatry. Babylon is intoxicating. Daniel and his friends, they were offered every pleasure and every opportunity that the world could hope to have, and their challenge was to stand firm and saying, no, that God is my source. God is enough, and that God can be trusted. And God is telling them, my ways are better than Babylon's, and they are to stand up and hold to that. Very much easier said than done. So Nebuchadnezzar constructs this image of gold, in this image, by this image, he's saying, I am all-powerful, my kingdom is better than all other kingdoms, and the gods who gave me this power are higher than any other gods. And if you aren't down with that, well then, hey, we just use this furnace to construct this huge thing, we'll just toss you in it. All right? That is what he is saying. As far as humans go, he was right. Nobody else on earth had as much power as Nebuchadnezzar had. And it isn't stated explicitly in the text of what this image was, but let's just, for the sake of argument, Nebuchadnezzar was a pretty selfish individual. It was of him, all right? Just for the sake of argument. Uh, the image was himself. He wants to be the center of attention. He wants to be the object of everyone's worship. And I think of this, my, how times have changed. Isn't that what we have these days? As long as you get yours, then who cares about the other guy? How dare anyone stand in the way of you being happy? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And I'm going to steal this line directly from Jordan. I'll apologize to him later. God does not care about your happiness. He cares about your holiness. 
And holiness is not this pie in the sky, let's walk around and speak King James to everybody and make them feel judged. No, being holy means being set apart for something greater than this world can offer. And the funny thing is, is that this is how God created us. What will not make you holy is not going to make you happy. It just won't. Because you weren't created to be happy. Not saying that you can't be happy, but you're going to, going to find true fulfillment in God. You were created for holiness. And so you're not going to find any true fulfillment outside of that. So we have this monument that's to the power of King Nebuchadnezzar. And these three Israelites, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to bow. And they fully know what's going to happen if they refuse to bow. The king is, as expected, furious that anybody would stand up to him. But he cools off a bit when he finds out who it is because he likes these guys. Uh, God's been blessing them, and they were good dudes. They were good servants of the king. And so Nebuchadnezzar gives him a second chance. He brings the three of them in, and he says, Hey, just I'm going to give you another chance. When you hear all the music, just bow down like, every, like everyone else does, and hey, we'll be cool. You know, you don't, don't worry, you know. But hey, if you don't, I'm going to toss you in the fire, and then what God is going to be able to save you from my hand? And let's listen to the response that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. Mm-hmm. It's okay, bud. Try it again. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown to the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. I find their response very interesting. And very true to what faith really is. They claim in, they hold true to the ability of God to deliver. But they aren't so bold as to flat out say, hey, just toss us in there, we're going to be fine. They know he can, they says, we know he can save us, he will, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. That's what truth faith is. We trust that God is able, that God is good, that we can still trust him, but whether or not God decides to intervene That has no effect on what his power is. When when is the last time that we were being, when persecution was chasing after us and we stood in the face of Babylon and says, we don't have to answer you on this. We serve a God that's greater. But no, we just find ourselves answering all the time. And so I want to talk today about the faith that these men showed, what true biblical faith is. Faith in a God that could save them, even though they were not entirely sure that he would save them. Hebrews 11, chapter 6, we read that without faith, it is impossible to please God. No way, no chance. There is nothing you or I produce or do that pleases God if it is not done by faith. So it's important to understand what faith is and what it isn't. A couple of decades ago, I stood in front of my church, my home church, with a preacher, and I made a profession of faith. And I was dunked in some water. I was baptized. And we almost understand, a lot of us have had that that moment, but that historic moment in time, that was just the beginning of faith. It wasn't the culmination of it. There are too many people that have made a profession of faith somewhere many years ago that at this historic moment of time that that's all they've ever done is to say one time, I believe. And I want us to understand, no shame, but that's not faith. 
Faith is not something you once did. Faith is something that you constantly do. It is a perpetual thing. It is a thing that pleases God. I cannot please God in 1991 and wonder in 2015 if we're still good. Pleasing God is why I'm here. Pleasing God is why you're here. And it's not hard to please God if you live by faith, if you trust. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, one of the Old Testament prophets, he says something in his prophecy that is repeated throughout Scripture. And we see this echoed in the New Testament as well by the Apostle Paul, the author of Hebrews. He says this, the righteous shall live by faith. A righteous person, someone who is right with God, will live by this motivating component called faith. And if, so we'd better understand what faith is. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, we read that my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We read about this one day in the book of Daniel where they stood in the face of the fire and they had this great moment of faith saying, God can save us, he will save us. And so we think of this, but that moment of faith was preceded by a lifetime of faith. It prepared them for that moment. It's not, faith is not something that happens in a moment. It is a perpetual thing. It is a now and forever thing. It is growing, learning, living. It's experiential. We need to understand what faith looks like right now, today, not what it, what it looked like back when we made our profession of faith. How do we live each and every day? You're not saved by the things that you do, but the things that you do show that you're saved, and they show what your faith really looks like. So we have this uh, verse in Hebrews chapter 11, a very popular verse. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. So if we want to look at the nature of faith, I want to give you four simple words that I think that we can agree on, that these are all related to our understanding of faith. We've made this concept of faith so much more complex than what it was originally intended to be in the Greek language, but I want to give you these four words that I think we can work with. And that is belief, trust, confidence, and reliance. Belief, trust, confidence, and reliance. I want you to know about this, that faith is not in myself or my ability to believe. Faith is in the one who I place it in. So it pleases God when we place our faith on him. So what are we believing about God that is so important? It's not just about believing that God is or that God exists. That's important. We see the world around us. We see its design. And we realize that it was here before I arrived. It's going to be here long after I'm dead. And there is a God who designed it all and gave it to us. Our belief goes beyond just acknowledging that God exists. There are plenty of agnostics out there who are going to grant you that argument. But we place our faith not only in the existence of God, but we place it in two things. I'm going to grossly oversimplify this that will drive our Bible, Bible scholars in the room nuts, but I want to uh, share these two things about God that I think is the beginning of where our faith starts. Is that Do you believe that God is a good God? And do you believe that he keeps his word? Those are the two principles where we begin our walk of faith. Do I believe that God is good and that he loves me, that he cares about me, or is he just some vindictive God that's out there trying to get even? I do believe that God is good, that he's loving, and through Jesus Christ, he demonstrated every bit of that. I also believe that he keeps his word on everything that he's ever said. 
that there is no untruth in him. That he always tells the truth, that we can trust him, and that is where I place my faith. And without faith that God is good, that God keeps his promises to us, we cannot please God because we're calling him a liar. We're telling him we, that we can't trust him. We don't live in that trust. And we look at the nature of faith of these four words, belief, trust, confidence. And I love this last one, reliance. Where does my strength come from? Who is my refuge? Who's the one that's going to hold me up when I can't even hold my own head up? Who can I trust when I can't even trust myself? I'm not very good at being good. Are you? I, I might have a two-hour span at times. Well, carry my correct 90 minutes tops, okay? So, uh, but it doesn't really go longer than that. And I go back to being me. And in this battle to overcome me, who do I place my faith in? Myself? My history? My future? My abilities? No, I place it in God, a God who is good and a God that could be trusted. And so we want to look at this. Faith is accepting what God offers us. It's not looking for what we want him to offer us. And this is really important. Uh, There's this quote, Dr. Timothy Keller. He says that if you have a God that can't tell you no, then you don't have a God. You're the God. If you have a God that can't say no to you occasionally, or if you have a God that can't say you're wrong, then you don't have a God that you want to worship. You become the God you want to worship. And you want people to do your bidding. And I'm not assuming that there's anyone out here intentionally trying to do this. But if we analyze our faith, what we'll come to understand is faith is not in what I produce, but rather in the one who keeps his promises to me. And then my faith is in a God that can tell me no. A God who can tell me to wait. A God who could say, not now. A God who could say, Paul, you're wrong. But Babylon, oh, Babylon gives us options, doesn't it? Let's be honest. We live in a world that says now is the God that we should serve. If you're hungry, eat whatever you want. If you have sexual desires, then go fill those desires. How dare you be told that you can't? If you want this, take it. If you want that, take it. And Babylon promises us now. But we look at our God, Jesus, in the wilderness. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting, praying, seeking God's will as he was beginning his ministry. And on the 40th day, when his body was at his weakest, emotionally, socially, physically at its weakest, Satan shows up and he says, hey, Jesus, you can turn those stones into bread. And Jesus was tempted with one of the greatest temptations that we will ever face, to take it now, to have what I want now because I deserve it, or to wait for the Lord to provide. And after Jesus said no to the temptation of now, what's fascinating is that he waited on the Lord, and after he endured all of the devil's temptations, it says that angels came and fed him and ministered to him. You see, God is good. God will keep his promises to us, but sometimes we have to wait on the Lord. And that takes faith, because I don't want to wait on the Lord. I want it now. We all want now, but we have a God that says, no, 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 just wait. Do you know that the majority of the promises that God made in the Old Testament have yet to be fulfilled? That takes faith. You might be thinking, well, nine out of the ten promises have been fulfilled. What if I said three out of the ten have yet to be fulfilled or have only been fulfilled? No, I'm just making that number up. Let's just say a number that shocks you. It takes faith. Do you still believe that God is good and that he can be trusted? 
This is what the scriptures say. It says that we have to hold on to these things, that faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we have not seen. That is the crux of faith. God has said he will. Will we wait for him? God has said he is, but will we wait until he reveals that completely? Or will we listen to Babylon and go for the now? Because here's the truth of it. We know how to wait. And we know how to trust, but it's not easy. Faith is not easy, even though it is a simple concept. So I want this morning to give you a working definition of faith. A working definition of what faith can mean and what we're going to be learning from this story. Faith is making a present substance out of a future reality. A present substance out of a future reality. And you and I know how to do this. Let me explain. We live in West Michigan. Remember back to January when it was gray and it was cold and it was snowing and there seemed to be no end in sight to this ridiculous lake effect snow. We saw Ellen on the TV telling us more snow was coming. We're yelling at her as if she had something to do with it and we're just so mad about this. And then you sit there and you then began to envision your vacation that was coming in the summer. And you saw yourself, you're going to be on the beach, you're going to lay on a blanket or sit in a chair, you're going to have a lemonade in one hand, a book in the other, you're going to have your feet in the sand, and the breeze from the lake's going to be hitting your face, and you were on vacation in January. How many of you have gone on a vacation before it happened? And let's get even more practical here. How many of you know where you're going to be eating for after church today? You're going to be going to your favorite restaurant, you're already starting to taste it. You're already thinking... Uh, Here's what I'm going to order. This is how many of them I'm going to order. And how much noise am I going to make while I am enjoying all of it? And you begin to wonder, at what point are you going to have to undo your belt and lay on the couch and wait for God to save you? That is what it means to imagine, by faith, a present substance out of a future reality. Let's get more real. Remember when the doctors told you that you were pregnant? And remember when you already began to hold a baby? to smell the baby, to rock the baby, read to the baby, and play catch with the baby. Well, toddler, not (laughs) toss some babies back and forth. But anyways, uh, (laughs) but you begin to live a present substance out of a future reality. Church, we're wired by God to have faith. It's not a matter of, can I muster up enough strength to do something that I don't know how to do? You live out faith every day of your life. You just have to ask yourself the question, when you are confronted with the satisfaction of Babylon versus the promises of God, is God good and can he be trusted? Because without that, we will have no pleasure in God and he will have no pleasure in us. The Apostle Paul states it this way in Romans eight twenty-four through 25. For in this we hope. That we, for in this hope we were saved. Now, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, there's some people in this room who might be saying, well, I don't need faith. I need evidence. I live by evidence. I live by facts. I don't live by faith. And that's just not true. Every time you get sick and you go see a doctor, it's an exercise in faith. This person examines you. They determine what is wrong. They give you a poison pill that you're going to place into your body. You are showing your faith in the doctor, in the medical school that gave him that piece of paper that is just framed so nicely on the wall and that calls them a doctor, that they would have enough knowledge and experience to diagnose what is wrong with you. You're showing your faith in the scientists and the researchers who designed that poison pill and the chemistry of it that you're taking, that this poison is going to target the sickness in your body, but not the healthy parts of your body. 
You're showing your faith in the pharmaceutical companies that they have taken the appropriate safety precautions to follow the chemistry that they were given by their researchers to manufacture the pill appropriately, that they did the appropriate background checks on the people who are going to package up the hill and handle it and package it. I think you get my point. Now, some of you might say, well, preacher, I got you beat because, you know, whenever I get sick, I don't believe in Western medicine. I have a homeopathic, organic, gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, herbal tea with roasted dandelion roots, chamomile, lavender, and oil drawn from the sweat glands of a beaver. And this fixes everything that ails me. Well, unless you're collecting all those exotic ingredients yourself, and I don't know where you can trap a beaver and extract this oil, but uh, unless you are going to trust your faith in the manufacturers of your chamomile, dandelion root, lavender, beaver, sweat gland tea that has the cure to your sickness. Now, if you're a doctor, if you're really into homeopathic medicine, I'm just making a point, okay? Please don't yell at Jordan, not me. All right. (laughs) Church, is God good? Can God be trusted? Then we'd better be living differently. We put our faith in preachers and doctors and dentists and lawyers, politicians. Every day we put our faith in things. And I want to challenge this church to stand in the face of the fire and to live today like our God is good, that our God is worthy of our trust in all things, because then God will find pleasure in us. And that's why we're all here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Four cents in the wisdom of God. The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Here's why we call a gathering every Sunday morning. We don't gather because this is a ritual that makes God love us. We gather on Sunday mornings to inspire one another. That Babylon may be trying to consume us and crush us, but we inspire and encourage each other that living by faith matters. And here's the thing to have faith in. It's not in the promises of this world, of power and money and sex and everything that gives us the satisfaction of now. We're proclaiming, all of us, that the work that Jesus Christ did to overcome our sin shows that God is worthy of our attention and worthy of our lives. And so you and I can live differently. We don't live like the resident residents. We are resident aliens because we are living our present based on a future reality. Heaven is not for when we die. Heaven starts today. It's living our lives with God as king in all things, and we will worship him alone in all things. He created this world as a gift, and we give it back to him by the way that we use it to honor him and to bring him glory. That's why we're here. That's the reality of faith. Living now like we've already received everything that's been promised. So what is the testimony of faith? How do we know that this thing called faith is good for us? How do we know that it works? Back to our story, uh, Rakshak and Benny, they didn't take a second opportunity to bow. Nebuchadnezzar gave them saying, hey, go ahead and bow now and we'll be good. And they didn't take that second opportunity even to wait. They just said, king, do your worst. And his worst, he did. He had the furnace heated up to as hot as it would go. It says seven times stronger, and I'm sure it was already set to a temperature that was going to melt gold, so I can't even imagine how it was humanly possible to get something this hot, but it was as hot as they could get this furnace. He had his strongest soldiers that he could find tie up these three and toss them in the furnace. And this furnace was so hot that these strong guys were, who threw them into the fire, the flames killed them. That's how hot this furnace was. And for these three, God sent an angel. They were tossed in the furnace. God sent an angel who loosened up their bindings. And Nebuchadnezzar looks and he sees, hey, there's 
Three people, not only are there three guys standing and walking around, but there's a fourth. It says his face looks like the son of the gods, and that is God's divine intervention. And he says, come on out here, and the three of them walk out, and not even, they didn't even have the smell of smoke on them. You can't be around a campfire, a bonfire, for more than 30 seconds and not smell like that for two weeks. So, they did not even have the smell of smoke on them. That's how this miraculous it was. God left no doubt as to who was saving them. And we read that the heroes of old, in Hebrews 11, the first verse, that the heroes of old were commended for their faith. And who commended them? By God. Some of us have this picture of a God that's just very disconnected. That he's just kind of disenfranchised from this world. There's some people who believe that God created the world, he spun it, and he watches it spin, and off it goes. And then when it just stops spinning, he's going to clean up the mess and start over. And what part of that story makes us think that that's what God is like. Our God is a very connected God. He pursued us before we ever pursued him. He's involved in the lives of every single person who lives by faith. And sometimes he asks things of us that are hard to follow, but if you believe God is good, if you believe that he can be trusted, then you can walk by faith because our God is an engaged father. And the heroes of faith that you read about in the Bible, uh, they were all commended by God and they were called righteous, not because they were good, They were all sinful people, but at the end of the day, they were commended because they trusted God when it was hard, and they trusted every single day. So when faith gets real, when we start to live our lives and work out our faith based on a God who is good, a God who can be trusted, our faith will reveal God to the world. Because remember, we don't do things because because we don't do things so that we can be saved. We do things because we are. Because we're his. We look at the story of faith. We treat these three young men like these superheroes that they have this faith and they stood up in the moment and I can never hope to have that much faith in God. But the reality is is that the power of their testimony is not the power of their faith, but the power of the one who their faith was in. So last section from Daniel 3 we want to read today. We hear of this testimony after divine intervention. Nebuchadnezzar is... Uh, humbled once again. His image of gold is not being worshipped, but he cannot ignore, and he makes a proclamation here. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's commands and and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any gold except their own God. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned to piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Amen. So what God can save you from my hand? And at the end of the story, no other God can save in this way. So I want to ask you some questions. I want us to be honest. I want this to be a dialogue. I want us to look together, to think together, and we need to answer some tough questions. Let's look at our faith. Is my faith based on my ability to believe? Or is my faith in the fact that I've always gone to church or that somehow I have this ability to read what God's will is here on earth? Or is my faith in that God is good and that he can be trusted? So here's a series of questions that I want us to consider. Prayer. Is your prayer life void? You pray over meals, you pray when you're at church, you close your eyes, but deep down inside, you have no yearning to pray. 
You have no connection. You just kind of feel empty. You just do it because it's this empty calorie habit that you've always done. It's, it's a sacrificial system. I'll give God five minutes, and I hope that he gives me something in return. When you read the Bible, is there, just, is there no juice? There's no power. You, don't get, you read it, you just don't get it. It's kind of boring, and you just really wish you were doing anything else. Come into church. Some of you are sitting here even today saying, I'm trying my best, but I can hardly stand coming here. I come because they want me to, and, and I'm just sitting here going, I just don't think this church thing is for me. And if we're being real, every one of us struggles with that, don't we? You may look around and you see people who are weeping in church and they're raising their hands in worship and they're filled with excitement in church and, and you look at them saying, they've got something I don't have. No, you misunderstand. Those people have taken one step into the goodness and faithfulness of God and once you experience how good he is and how faithful he is, you can't quit walking. But if you're still, if you're stuck, the solution isn't anything that I can do for you, anything that we can do for you. The solution is to read the word of God and obey it. To seek the face of God and he will reveal himself to you. Because when you call out to God, I can't find you, that may be the most faithful step you've ever taken. Because if God doesn't reveal himself to us, we're all lost. So we fall on our faces before God and we say, this scares me. I realize I'm not in charge, but you are. I've got nothing. And God says, now I can work with you. Church, faith isn't easy. It's hard. It will demand things of you that you never planned on giving up. Just over 10 years ago, I stood before a preacher and a cute brown-eyed girl. And we made a vow to each other to be faithful to each other for the rest of our lives. And if she wanted to, she could rip my heart into a million pieces. And I cannot even begin to imagine how slow and painful the process would be of putting me back together. But I have faith in her that she's not going to do that. Why? It's because I know her. Because she's a better person than me. Because we've shared parts of our lives together and it's bonded us together for eternity. Because church, when you know who your faith is in, it becomes less scary. I can give up that control in my life. But church, who is your faith in? You can humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. The Bible says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will, Sunday school, lift you up. Let me tell you, faith in God, it's not scary. Faith is freeing. I want to share with you a poem. Now, the authorship of this poem is a little bit in question, but the story goes that it was written by someone in Rwanda who was writing this on the night before they were to be executed for their faith. If he did not renounce his faith in Christ, they were going to kill him. And I want this poem to be our challenge today and every day. It's called The Fellowship of the Unashamed. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed vision, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, 
first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by his presence, learn by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up for the cause of Jesus Christ. I must go until he comes, give until I drop, preach until everyone knows, and work until he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no trouble recognizing me. My colors will be clear. Church, is God good? Can he be trusted? Then we've got to stand up when the world bows down. We're all following somebody. We might as well follow the one who knows where he's going. That poem I just read, we have some laminates of it in the, available for you as you leave for, for today. But don't just take it. Don't just stick it in your purse and stick it in your Bible. No, take it and put it in a place where it's going to challenge you every day, on your mirror, wherever you need to, because let me tell you, living the life that that poem describes is not going to be easy. It's not going to be safe, but it'll be good. In a moment, we're going to sing a song. We introduced this song a couple of weeks ago. It talks about who our faith is in, the fact that there is only one place that we should be looking. And when we do, we're going to find everything we want. If there is a decision that you have to make today, if there is something you need to be prayed with, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing to the God we place our faith in.